It's not often that I do a show here on Higher Journeys that warrants an immediate part two. But what you are about to hear is one such case. The story of Terry Lovelace is so deep, so multifaceted, so harrowing, with endless twists and turns. This is a story that continues to unravel to this day. That story was documented in his book, Incident at Devil's Den, a true story. This is about alien abduction, one of the strangest accounts I have ever heard. But the strangeness just begins with the abduction. What would follow his encounter carries all the makings of a sci-fi thriller, except this isn't science fiction at all. Terry, an otherwise normal guy, a lawyer, a former assistant attorney general, a family man, father, grandfather, is also an experiencer. A contactee whose encounters have taken him down a rabbit hole the likes of which I'd never heard before. Terry was very emotional during our interview, and for good reason. Reliving the days, weeks, and years that would follow his set of experiences, recurring nightmares, and an unrelenting passion to make sure that the world knows what he feels is really going on with many humans on this planet. Here now is part one of my interview with Terry Lovelace. Terry, I am super excited to have you on the show today. You know, it's been several months, I can't believe this, since we initially met out at Contact in the Desert back in June. We spent some time... We broke some bread, had a great dinner with a group, and we shared some of our individual experiences. And I think we connected right away. In fact, you know, I remember our being outside of the restaurant where we were uh, having dinner with this group of folks. And something quite strange happened. For a minute, you thought something had shifted in our immediate surroundings. Something having to do with the front door of the restaurant. We were standing outside, we were trying to get back in. Something happened. Do you, do you remember that? I remember that vividly. I remember that vividly. I remember that I, I'm not precisely sure how how to express it or to convey it, but Alexis, I felt like I've known you for a lifetime. I know. I know. And I don't feel that very often at all. That's a very that's a very rare occurrence. But um my guy, it, it was as strong as I've ever felt it. And it was, uh, it was just, it was beautiful. Yeah. You said that while we were standing outside. We know. I did say that. You, I forgot. I did. <laughs> you just made me remember. You said, why do I feel like I've known you for so long? Well, I, we know how magnificent the universe is, Terry. So nothing, I never cease to be amazed and yet nothing uh, surprises me either. So I'm just delighted. I'm so delighted you're back uh, back, back in my presence, but first time on the show. Let me formally welcome you before we get started in this great conversation. Welcome to Higher Journeys, Terry Lovelace. <laughs> and thank you for that kind welcome. And it is my pleasure and my privilege to be here. And I thank you for the opportunity to share my story yes. with your audience. I hope that they find it engaging. I hope they find it enlightening. Um, and I'm just happy to be here. Great. Well, it's my pleasure. And I know the journeyers are going. For those that don't know already, uh, your your incredibly um, intricate story, um, they, they're in for um, a wild ride. I think that's all I can say. It's This is a strange story. Strange story. This is what could be broadly called high strangeness. I say strange. It's not that it's a strange story. There's just aspects of it that are strange. But it, it is high strangeness. This has been your life story. And it's a long one. 
There are a lot of moving parts to the story of Terry Lovelace, and you've been courageous in sharing this with the world. You have a book called Incident at Devil's Den, A True Story that was released in March of 2018. And it's your personal, what I'm going to call data dump of a most harrowing true life saga that has to do with alien abduction and the aftermath that nearly turned your world upside down. You know, Terry, after I heard you tell your story in great detail uh, to Carrie Cassidy of Project Camelot, I labored over whether I should have you uh, repeat this very long and intricate journey of yours here on our show. In fact, what I'm going to do is link that interview with Carrie that you did about nine or so months ago, because it was really good, very good and, and certainly very detailed. So what I'd like to do here, if you would allow me, is to read the synopsis that's available on the Amazon page that features your book, because this synopsis in and of itself was quite detailed. I was very impressed when I read it. So what I'm going to do is have the audience listen to this, and then I'm going to have you bring up some of the highlights that you might punctuate what was just read. So hold on, journeyers, listen to this, and we'll be right back. This is my true story, written by Terry Lovelace, a 64-year-old lawyer and former assistant attorney general. In 2012, a routine x-ray of my leg found an anomalous bit of metal the size of a fingernail with two tiny wires attached. What followed were horrific nightmares, spontaneous recall, and intrusive thoughts surrounding a 1977 camping trip I took with a friend to Devil's Den State Park in northern Arkansas. For fear of losing my job and my standing in the legal community, I've kept this secret for 40 years. But the 2012 discovery of this object, one and one-half inches deep in my thigh, initiated a flood of nightmares I could not control. My poor health and the horrific memories were the catalyst to come forward and finally disclose what happened back in 1977. My friend and I were on a two-day camping trip to photograph eagles and wildlife. Rather than stay in the campground, we chose to drive deep into an isolated area and set up our camp on a high plateau that offered a scenic view of the wilderness. Late in the evening of our first night in camp, a group of three very bright stars in the western sky caught our attention. Arranged in a triangle configuration, we speculated as to what it could be. We eliminated aircraft lights due to the triangle configuration. Then it moved. The three cars rotated as if on an axis and slowly ascended upward. As it rose, the three points of light spread apart, each equal distant to the others. The stars grew larger and brighter. As the triangle passed over stars, they would blink out for a moment and then blink back again as it moved over them. The area inside the triangle was black, darker than the night sky. As the points expanded, they were eventually devouring entire fields of stars. As it traveled higher and moved closer to our camp, it eventually halted directly over us. It was huge. A third of the sky was covered by this black triangle overhead without a single star in between the three points. It was as if someone had cut an enormous triangle out of a sky filled with a billion stars. It descended until it was about 30 feet over the floor of the meadow. The size of the object was unbelievable. Each side of the triangle was a city block in length. I estimated its height at 50 feet or more, the size of a five-story office building. It sat motionless above the floor of the meadow. What followed was a horrific abduction experience. We both suffered badly from burns and dehydration, and we were hospitalized for two nights. 
I was interviewed by special agents from the United States Air Force Security Police's OSI, or Office of Special Investigations. They mistakenly believed I had photographed the object and I was viciously interrogated by two of their special agents. They demanded my film. My home and car were searched by consent, and I was hypnotized to assist my recall. It was a nightmare that left my wife and I sour on the whole UFO and the allegations surrounding our experience. I never intended to tell anyone, but the events of 2012 opened a door to memories about the abduction experience I had long forgotten and had no desire to even remember. In 2016, and in poor health, I decided it was the right time to disclose everything I knew and everything we experienced. The piece of metal in my leg was the genesis of this story. There is so much more that happened. Oh boy, quite the journey, Terry, quite the journey. And yet what we just heard, of course, is the tip of the tip of the iceberg, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Just the tiny tip. Yeah. Well, you did, like I said, you did quite a good job in giving, giving the potential reader a good dose of what they would expect in this book. And yet there are so many incredible, inexplicable twists and turns. What are some of the things? Now, again, you don't have to tell the story. I'm going to put that link so uh, people can hear uh, you're giving the account to uh, uh, Carrie Cassidy. But let's punctuate a bit. This is not just about uh, the abduction, of course, it's about the aftermath. The aftermath is where it gets really uh, trippy, (laughs) to say the least. What, What can you add to what was just read here? in terms of this interrogation? In terms of the interrogation, before the interrogation, uh, I, I, I want to slide this in first because in chronological order, it makes more sense. And it was the last time I saw my friend. And that deserves some explanation. Um, Toby was a um, brilliant mathematician which I am not. Um, His plans were to go to um, University of Michigan uh, and study cosmology. My plans were to go to University of Michigan and study law. Um, I was from St. Louis, he was from Flint, Michigan. And uh, Toby was just, just intrigued with the night sky, just he could watch the night sky like, um, oh my gosh, like, like some people who are sports-minded could watch a football game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's amazing, and he would point things out. He knew all the constellations. He uh, was just absolutely brilliant. He would say, he would look at his watch and look at his watch and say, oh, yeah, 15 seconds, here we go. Mm. And he, he could time the few satellites in 1977 that would come over. <laughs> and we were, we were on a nuclear base, so we were definitely target zero to, uh, to, to be uh, monitored by the Soviets. Um, but he was, a, he was a brilliant kid. And uh, we went through all of this, all of this horror, all of this trauma, all of these miserable, ugly things that had happened. And I, I didn't want anything to do with the guy. And I really had tremendous trouble 
reconciling that emotion, and and I still do to this day. Um, but well, I knew that I, I wanted to say goodbye one last time. So we were under strict orders to have no contact. We're coming home with groceries. Sheila's driving. I said, hey, stop by Toby's, please, please, please. I just want to run in and shake his hand and and tell him I'll miss him. Now, I'm going to stop you right there, Terry. You're, you're jumping ahead many years, I'm assuming. I think I've heard you talk about this before when you're at this point where you're saying you didn't want to have anything to do with him. I'm mi- missing a little bit there. Yeah, this is, and, and that's, and I apologize for that because I'm sure that this is, this is confusing to the listeners, and I apologize. The incident happened uh, in in June, and um, of 1977. Of 1977. Okay. I felt this immediate <clears throat> distaste, dislike for my friend hmm. that I couldn't that I couldn't understand immediately after this event. I wanted nothing to do with the guy. Um, this is just a couple weeks later from that. And I had this tremendous overriding sense of, I got to say goodbye to the guy. So that's the time frame. Okay. I begged my wife and she's like, don't mess with these OSI people. They're crazy. They'll lock you up. I'm like, listen, I'm going to run in. I want to shake his hand, I want to give him a hug, and I want to tell him, you know, I'm going to miss him. Uh, because they had cut orders for him to go to Japan in a matter of a couple of weeks. Now, to cut what they call PCS, permanent change of station in the military, to cut those orders uh, routinely takes weeks, many weeks. He, those orders were cut at light speed. We were ordered to stay separate from one another. We were changed in shift and changed in locations in the squadron where the uh, opportunity of us to run into one another in the grocery store, the laundromat was, was reduced, if that makes sense. They made it more difficult for us to, um, to uh, run into one another. And um, I walked up, I opened my door, I walked up to the, to the doorway, to the door frame, to the doorway that I've walked through a, a, a hundred times, and it was open. And I walked right in, uh, like I usually would, and Tammy, Tommy's wife, glared at me. And I'd never seen her glare at me before because we were just very, very, very close. And she said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, Tammy, I know uh, that we're ordered not, not to have any contact, but I, I really want to say goodbye to Toby. And Toby was in the bedroom around the corner, heard our conversation, and came stumbling around the hallway. Now, Toby was a meticulous um, uh, person about his personal appearance. He, uh, I never saw him in a dirty shirt. I never saw, he ironed his blue jeans. I mean, he was just <laughs> meticulous. And um, he came around the corner and I, 
I didn't hardly recognize the guy. And he was a short guy. It was like five foot seven, and I'm a little over six foot. And um, he came around the corner and staggered and had on a dirty T-shirt, dirty jeans, bare feet. Um, his hair was a wreck. Uh, he hadn't shaven. And as we got closer, I could smell vodka on his breath. Now, Toby was not a drinker. He was not a drinker. He, he would maybe have a beer or two at a barbecue, but he wasn't a drinker. And uh, he was drinking that day, and it wasn't beer. And uh, it was an awkward moment, and we had trouble making eye contact. And finally, we made eye contact, and I, and I held out my hand, and I stepped forward to hug him. And we stopped in midstream and did this awkward exchange of a handshake and um, I said, I, I just want to wish you well, man. I, I, I want to wish you all the luck in the world. I'm going to miss you. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you're, the, you're the best guy I ever worked with. Uh, and uh, he kind of smiled at that. And then uh, he's short, uh, but he's looking at the tips of his shoes. And he looked up at me, and he had these bloodshot eyes. And they were tearful, and he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yeah, Tobe, it happened, my friend. And he said, it happened, and they hurt us, didn't they, Terry? And I said, yeah, Terry, they, uh, yeah, Tobe, they, 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 they hurt us. I don't know why, um, because I knew that was his next question. And... Uh, we stared at each other for, for just for uh, a good 10 seconds and never said a word. And uh, I turned down, looked at my shoes, and uh, I ran out of the house and uh, ran to the car and told Sheila, let's go home. And uh, there are some other things that happened we really don't have time for. Um, the OSI, the Office of Special Investigation, had followed us and had hemmed us in. To Terry's home? I'm sorry, to Toby's home, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So Sheila had a difficult time wiggling out of this parking spot, and these two OSI agents are just laughing. Uh, they're just yucking it up. And uh, took our groceries home, and I... Uh, I unloaded the groceries, and uh, uh, and the phone's ringing. As I put, I said, matter of fact, I'm putting the key in the door, and the phone's ringing. And uh, we had wall phones then, um, and I, I I ran to the phone and I picked it up, and I said, Sergeant Lovelace, and I heard this familiar voice on the other side say, "Well, you just couldn't do it, could you, son?" And I knew who it was, and that was Special Agent Gregory. He was the same special agent who interrogated me so, so harshly in the hotel, in the uh, hospital room. And I said, "Sir, I just wanted to say goodbye." And he says, "Now I want to know." 
he had this odd southern accent. He said, now, I want to know what you gave him and what he gave you. And I said, sir, nothing other than a handshake. And uh, he said, hmm, I don't believe you. And he says, watch your, I don't know what I can and cannot say, but you can fill in the blank mm. um, because we're watching you. So he hung up. And it just stunned me that uh, these guys had fought covertly followed me to the grocery store and back. And this is many weeks. This is, oh, many weeks past the event because uh, they, they were packed and almost ready to go. Um, but it was an odd, odd experience. Absolutely. This whole thing is odd, uh, Terry. And I, I hope, I and I hope and pray, I'm speaking to the audience now, that what we, again, just a snapshot that we gave you, that you're able to pick up the pieces and kind of see where this fits in. I, I have to tell you, and I'll, I'll admit to the audience, when I was preparing to have you on the show and really kind of getting a, 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 a grip around this entire story, I did not know where I would start here. Where do you start? I mean, clearly this warrants a four, five, six hour conversation, which obviously we can't have in order because we want to make sure that our audience understands all of the nuances, all of the moving parts, at least in... Uh, some sort of cliff notes, if you will. I'm really going to, I'm going to stress this again, if I hadn't said it earlier, I want people to listen to, I'm going to give Carrie Cassidy and Project Camelot a plug, um, listen to that show in its entirety, uh, listen to Terry's story in its entirety. I am perplexed. I, I, I'm trying to figure out where I want to go from here. This interrogation, and I don't want to stay on that. And yet I want to see if we can as I like to say sometimes when I'm talking to my guests, connect some dots because there are some dots that need to be connected here. I recall, Terry, as you're telling the story about this interrogation from the beginning, when the event first happened, post the event, <clears throat> right after the event, I should say, happened in 1977, you were brought in, you were both interrogated, I believe, separately. And you were so uh, explicit and, and uh really quoting this man that was uh, in doing the interrogation and the 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 sarcasm for one and it was just over the top now i know there can be a bit of that in military because it's all about rank and file and i know all that but in the context of what we're talking about here and what just happened what were your thoughts now i know it's all about because it's rank and file and yes sir no sir and you, i'm did you feel like you wanted to sock this man i mean were you wondering why are you asking me these questions? What what were, what was going through your head? You know, my thought was I have a little more than a year left in the military, mm. and um, he had mentioned that, and he had this odd southern accent that I mentioned earlier. You know, when he when we had the telephone conversation, and he says, uh, you know. Lovelace, I got my eye on you, and he says, "You, you know, you, you, you better, you better be uh, cautious. You better be careful." And um, he he intimidated me yes. intentionally, right from the get go, right from the start. 
to set the whole tone of the conversation. And uh, he said, uh, what do you boys got yourselves down there? You got yourselves a little marijuana plot down there? Is that what you boys got going on down there? A little marijuana plot? And that scared the heck out of me because I got to tell you, uh, 1977, that would have been a stint in Leavenworth. Mm. Uh, that would have been a disaster for my family and for me and for my wife. And uh, I said, no, sir, no, no marijuana plant. We don't. We, you know, we test clean. We don't, because uh, they, they subjected us to urinalysis because we had access to drugs. And uh, I, I never had a dirty drop. I didn't use drugs. And uh, he said, uh, well, he says, I, I, I think uh, maybe you down there just, uh, har- you just must be just harvest time then, huh? You just put them, put them on all, all in a big box and a big, big, big sack. Is that what you're doing? Getting ready to uh, to harvest is that, and, and just just kind of uh, um, just kind of number one is just scaring me so badly because my mind is racing a mile a minute of uh, a court martial, you know, um, the 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 emotions my wife would have to go through. And the, uh, you know, the, the time in prison and uh, for nothing. And I got to tell you, I did not trust these guys. Not before, not since, not after. I did not trust these guys. And I would not put it above them to grow down there and plant a little marijuana patch. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that one of the most important things... This is absolutely crucial. Um, after after we did, he did this threatening interrogation. The um, the captain leaves, who was a, a subordinate to the to the guy asking the questions, and my nurse leaves, and they had the lights turned out in my room because they were so photophobic. From from the um, I had like arc welders burned to my eyes. And uh, he got down next to my ear. He bent over. We're the only two in the room and the door is closed. And he, in just above a whisper, and in a normal tone of voice, not an intimidating tone of voice, he says, uh, almost like a father-son relation, almost like a father-son type of conversation, he says, Son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? And I didn't react. And he says, oh, I think you know what I mean. Oh, I know you know what I mean. And I don't know if it was by accident or design, but you stumbled onto something. And I'm not talking about marijuana. And he says, I want you to tell me about it. I want you to tell me 
because I had a reputation in the squadron as an amateur photographer. I had a little dark room set up. I took black and white photographs and, you know, not a heck of a lot of photographs you can take on a military installation or a nuclear base. But uh, I like photographing wildlife and and birds in particular. And um, he says, all I want to know, son, and this can all be over, is I want your film and I want to know how many pictures you took and I want to know everything that was said between you and Toby. And if we can take 15, 20 minutes right now, we could maybe close this case for you. And I said, sir, I didn't give him anything. He didn't give me anything. Um, and I completely avoided the uh, UFO because I knew if I said that, that gave him good reason to have me locked up in a psych ward for right. a month. So, um, you know, they so you were, lock you up. You were yeah. thinking on your feet for sure. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a question. Uh, when you were, when he was once again saying, tell this story and we can maybe close this case, whatever parlance or euphemism he used, in your mind, Terry, were you thinking, oh, my God, this man knows what's going on with, with these abductions. Precisely. That, yeah. was a, that was a revelation. That was just... Uh, At what point did you figure that out, that they know, dug on well, what's going on here, what's been when, going on? When he had that crazy accent, and he says, and he's looking me in the eye, and he says, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there. And I just felt that this is something way bigger than, than a couple of marijuana plants. And I, I, I knew, I knew that he knew. And uh, it, it was amazing. It was amazingly frightening. I want to ask another question. Something just came to you. I'm going to run with this. Did give me this this individual, if you will, their their rank again? They were what now? Yeah, the elder got the elder of the two was a major. Okay. Uh, that was a, that's a, a golden oak leaf, and he was about eh, probably mid fifties, and uh, short in stature. Uh, he carried himself with this real tough guy affect, you mm -hmm. know, just and this. His his uh, he wore his blue suit coat uh, unbuttoned so that you could see his shoulder holster, hmm. and he uh, he did that saunter that uh, you know that Clint Eastwood would do when he walked into the right. bar, you know, and uh, I'm nobody to mess with. Don't 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 right. don't, don't try me. Which is a typical uh, Napoleonic sort of the complex. Did you know this individual prior to the incident? Did were you no, aware? You did not. Ne never saw him before in my okay, life. The so, so second he walked in, the second he walked into that room, I said, "This guy's a cop." Okay, I want to stop right there. This is where I want to go because this just came to me. I had a feeling you were going to tell me that you did not know who this. Now, typically, if you're on base, I would imagine you would know. Particularly if it's at that rank, you would know who this individual is. Has it 
ever crossed your mind that this individual that interrogated you was not entirely human? Alexis, nah, not until this very minute. It just came to me. Odd accent. You brought that up three or four times. Odd Southern accent. You know, the persona of, you know, being, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Bad Guy, I'm this, I'm that. But there's some things that you, as you're telling the story that it just came to me almost like an epiphany. Could this have been a hybrid or maybe even non-human intelligence that was on this base? You didn't even know who this person was before. You know, that sure made sense, makes sense now that you say it. You know, I, my, my folks came from northern Arkansas, so I, I knew uh, that accent. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, relatives from all over the country. And uh, I, I learned when I was in kindergarten that if you're gonna get along in St. Louis, Missouri, you gotta learn to talk like the guy on the six o'clock news, or you're gonna be or you're gonna be teased and and, and worse. So um, I, I'm familiar with accents and cognizant of accents. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much so my son grew up wanting to be a linguist uh, <laughs> and, and almost did so. Um, but you know that 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 accent when you when you piece it all together, I'd love to have a linguist evaluate those words. I wish I could get my hands on a tape. Mm. Well, you were regressed, were were you not? Was there was there an actual regression that took place in addition to the interrogation? There was. There was. Talk about um, that for a little bit, if you could. I was about, uh, Toby was just days away from leaving. We hadn't seen each other since our once vision. And I'm going to kind of cut through the chase here, but my uh, first sergeant calls me into the uh, uh, commander's office and says, uh, go ahead and lock up your, uh, uh, well, the, the commander spoke and he says, Go ahead and lock up your your, uh, your shop for the day, and uh, the uh, OSI want to see you. They're sending a car for you. I su don't suspect. I don't suggest that you keep them waiting. And uh, with that, uh, I was dismissed. And uh, I, I went running down the hall and and checked my appearance in the men's room. And uh, I, I ran down the hall, and sure enough, there was a blue uh, Air Force security police car pulled up, you know, right at the front steps. And guy gets out, um, typically humorless uh, uh, um, Air Force intel uh, security policeman, and he says, Sergeant Lovelace, I said, yes, sir. He says, have a seat in the back. And I'd never been in a police car in my life. 
And uh, this was 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 a strange uh, experience for me. You know, no door handles, no door locks. It was, uh, um, you know, uh, a mat. There were no floor mats, no carpeting. There was just uh, steel all around. It was just an odd, odd experience that set a, a really threatening tone. I only mention it because of that. And he drove us a few miles to the uh, Air Force Naval or, or uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigation on Whiteman Air Force Base, and we got out, and the place was Stalin-esque is the best way I can think of it. Is uh, I'm kind of interested in architecture, and uh, it was. Uh, it was that it was the, like those buildings that they made in mass production in in Cuba and in uh, uh, communist third world countries, mm -hmm. uh, where everyone shared the same. Uh, and it was um, uh, I had to go through these triple lock doors with the buzz to get through the through the doors. And he took me down the hallway and he stuck me in this room. And he said, quote, someone will be right with you. And he shut the door and it locked behind him. And this was about 9.15 a.m. And I sat there and I watched the clock. It was the Westinghouse schoolhouse clock, you know, the, the <laughs> kind that we all know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the room was, you know, about the size of a good sized bathroom. Uh, there was a 1950s vintage uh, uh, desk and chair that were made out of, uh, you know, steel and, and fabric. And uh, they were definitely military. You couldn't buy them in a furniture store, I'm sure. And they were, um, they were, uh, oh, oh, there was a, uh, on the wall, on the wall to my left, there was a about 18 inch diameter uh, mirror that had been framed out with wood. And I thought, oh, that's curious. Who in their right mind would be worried about grooming themselves in the middle of an interrogation room? Mm -hmm. And then it hit me, well, that's not, that's not to groom yourself, that's so they can see you. And uh, uh, I sat there, and it was 9.30, it was 10, it was 11. And this wait was intentional and purposeful, mm -hmm. um, designed to, to, to build tension and designed to make me feel uncomfortable. And boy, did, did they succeed. And uh, it was right before 12, right before noon, and the two agents that visited me in the uh, in the hospital room walked in, and they were talking about golf or something inane. And and uh, the one guy the one guy uh, stops conversation and shifts his attention over to me and says, "Well, Sergeant Lovelace, you know you're going to be interrogated today." And I said, no, sir, I knew I was going to be answering some questions. 
And he says, that's the same thing. He says, and we're going to give you a little bit of medication that'll, that'll help your memory. It helps you relax and it makes the process go so much easier. And I said, but sir, wait a minute. I don't, I don't recall uh, anything about any hypnosis. And he turns on this real tough guy affect again, reaches in his briefcase, pulls out two pieces of paper and slams them hard on the desk in front of me takes his finger and points at the signature block and says, is that not your signature, son? Hmm. And I said, yes, sir. And I said, well, you know, sir, I, I, my, my eyes, I could hardly see when I, when I signed these, and I really didn't, didn't really understand what, I, what I'd signed. And he said, well, we had two witnesses there who swore that you said that you understood and I said, well, I, I, I really didn't, sir. I, I really would not have, uh, gave, I would not have assented, gave my permission for hypnosis. Uh, I don't trust it. Uh, and I've been taking psych classes for two years, so I knew a little bit about hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, oh, that's no problem. We'll just care, we'll just tear these pictures. We'll just tear, we can tear all this stuff and throw it away. It's not a problem. And I was stunned. I said, "Really?" He said, "Sure, it's no problem." He says, "Well, you, we'll we'll have to keep you in lockup, uh, and uh, we'll just see you at the court martial and sort everything out then." Oh my gosh. What's with this sarcasm? I have to. I, I mean, I know that this this element can exist within, you know, environments like this, but for something so out of the ordinary, something that clearly the two of you didn't consciously bring on, I'm talking about the abduction and the aftermath, there's this, this complete uh, sarcasm and, you know, just, uh, I'm trying to think of another word, just digging you just just digging i'm assuming with with uh, toby as well what do you feel that was all about this is like over the top all it of was them. all about intimidation well, alexis sure. it was all about who is in control here sure and everything they did everything they said they had to be the ones in control and that that's what i think And it was terrifying. It's terrifying dealing with someone. Uh, you know, uh, if you've got a dog, you know, you got a dog and he puts his head in your lap and you pet your dog and you mirror back and his eyes mirror back at you love and affection and trust. And, um, and uh, there's a relationship there. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, with these guys, uh, there was none of that. There was absolutely none of that. It was strictly business, and it was strictly be careful you don't say the wrong word or you can go to jail. Right. And um, that's what I think it was all about. It was all it was all orchestrated. Sure. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, I rehearsed and planned and uh, um, 
they were headed somewhere. And um, well, here's another question I want to ask, and I'm going to ask this question and see if I can just park a, a statement I want to make after. We're spending the majority of the time, which I think is 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 warranted talking about this interrogation and all of the what brought this on being this abduction. Uh, again, each part of your experience, Terry, has its own set of moving parts, this interrogation, this whole thing with the military at the time uh, being one of them. But I want to ask you, going back now, uh, I'm assuming you've you've had uh, this regression, perhaps some uh, post regressions since this time, maybe many years later, we haven't even gotten to what happened to you in 2012. Uh, but I want to see if I can back into this a little bit. From what you recall of the actual abduction, or maybe abductions, plural, have you thought about anything that happened during the abduction that would be so important for them to behave this way after the fact? Did you learn anything during this abduction? Were you told anything that you can recall? Did you witness something during this abduction in the presence of these entities? That thought honestly had never crossed my mind. That thought was, was you witnessed something you shouldn't have seen. uh, And, uh, it's going to cause you trouble if you talk about it. So just shut up. And uh, uh, but why I, wit- I witnessed something crucial, something very, very important. And I don't know what it was. You don't. I don't know what it is. You don't recall, you're saying, huh? I saw, well, I saw a lot of different things. I can tell you what I think it is. Okay, please and that do. Is, and that is on board this ship. We were standing frozen. We couldn't move anything except our eyes. We held our hands. We held our hands uh, uh, in our. We held our, our clothing. We were held in our hands, and we were crying. And we could only move our eyeballs. And um, I could hear a woman. This is this is a part of a nightmare that I that I put up with for forty five years. <laughs> And and I, I I hear this woman scream, and there you know there are different characteristics of screaming. You know you can scream when someone jumps out and goes boo. You can scream when someone gives you a diamond ring. You know, and you can scream when um, the dental drill hits a nerve. And this this was a dental drill hitting a nerve. Uh, I heard this poor woman scream and she was, it was definitely pain and, and it, it scared me so, so bad. And then uh, passage of time, things weren't on a linear timeline, but some passage of time had left and I noticed Toby was gone. And then I recognized his voice and I heard him clear as a bell scream oh no 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 oh no not that no no don't do that no hmm. no please and then i heard him scream and i know too i know toby's scream and i never never heard that since that 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 scream with that intensity before but i could tell that it was a combination of pain and terror and um 
then we were um, then we were we were back in in the formation, and um, there were some other people there, um, and they were all crying too um, because it was the only thing you could move. It was the only thing a part of your body that moved, and uh, I was moving my eyes around, and I was thinking I want to. I want to commit to my memory as much of this as I can. You know, this is my memory. These belong to me. This is something important. It's important to me. It's important to humanity. And I'm going to hold on to it no matter what. And that was my goal. And I think that that determination uh, was very helpful. Absolutely. And he... uh, Oh, I can tell this I, is kind of getting to you. And please don't let me take you down a road if it's too uncomfortable for you. No, I, I think I I think it's important. Um, um, just just I'm sorry. Just give me just one sec. We had um, the we were both Toby and I were back in our. Um, in our uh, uh, in our place in line, and um, there was a creature, not human, uh, but maybe not totally alien, about six and a half feet tall, uh, athletically built, uh, but on the thin on the thin slot on the thin side. Uh, he he wore a gray uh, gray um, skin tight flight suit, and I recalled that it had a V neck to it. I don't know why that caught my attention, but it did. And um, I was looking for hair to see if there was any hair in his neck, and there was no hair in his neck, and he wore a. Uh, there was just a little bit of hair on top of his head. And uh, no question, this guy was in charge. Uh, he made hand gestures um, that seemed to be almost like sign language. They were made with purpose. And he um, he that did a couple of things that, that, that showed you, 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 you can tell the guy the way a person carries themselves. You can tell who's in command. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I turned my eyeballs as far to the left as I could by happenstance. He turned his head. And in that instant we locked eyes. And this is another one of my nightmares. Um, and the second we locked eyes, this guy was in my head. Alexis, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, but he was in my head and he knew my, he knew my wife. He knew my secrets. He knew, um, my parents, he knew my hopes and my dreams and my wishes and my, my, um, my deepest, darkest secrets, and he knew me. He knew all of it, and uh, he downloaded it. 
I have no doubt he downloaded it all, which, which just took a matter of seconds. And if you've ever seen a, um, a film clip where the, the film is sped up and you see a blur, mm-hmm. I saw a blur, but every single instant of that blur I recognized and I knew what it was about. So this blur happened in my mind, and it was my life. It was my life. And um, that, that I think was the most frightening thing to think that he knows me. Right. And um, will he come back someday? And uh, that... That's the second worst nightmare I've had. The, the, the first one was uh, the, one I, the one I talked about earlier. Right. Uh, but, um, and the nightmares continue to this day, Terry? Yeah, about once or twice a year. Okay. You know, we, ne- we never told our children. My wife and I never told our children about this um, because they didn't want children to, my day saw a UFO, you know. We, we, we didn't want to subject them to that. Sure. So when my son was in college and my daughter was about to graduate from high school, uh, I sat them down one day and I said, um, you guys know me and, and I'm going to write this book and uh, I'm going to tell the truth and uh, I think it's important that the world knows. Mm-hmm. And they were, just, they were just dumbfounded. Now, had they known the story at this point? No. Oh, so you were telling them, I'm going to write this book, and by the way, here's what it's about. Yes. Mm. And what was their, they were dumbfounded, but were they, were they, um, obviously perplexed, but were they dubious? Were they, how did they my, react? My son hugged me and said, I love you and I support whatever you write. That's and right. that touched me. My daughter, who's the more scientifically bent of the two, um, read it. Uh, and she's like me. She can speed read. Um, and she didn't read the entire book, but she read an awful lot of it in about 15 minutes. And never said a word, never made a facial, ex- facial expression. And she closed it and she handed it back to me. And she says, Dad, you've wrote a legal brief here. You've got 57 footnotes. You have um, verbal uh, language that the lay person would be lost on. And he says, you've got to write this for people, for people to Mm -hmm. read and understand. And he says, Dad, tear it up and write it from your heart and not from your head. And I did that, and it just opened a floodgate. And I did that, and the it was it it was amazing. It was the best the bit of advice I had ever received from your I, son. From your son. Uh, this was from my daughter. From your daughter. From your daughter. From my daughter. Yeah, my daughter teaches <sighs> biology and chemistry. Mm, you have such a supportive family. Listen, I want to tell you, um, no surprise, this went, 
I, I always ask before a show, let this go where it needs to go. And I think this was good for a whole lot of reasons for us to kind of stay on this particular path. I mean, this is look, this is the matrix meets uh, the adjustment bureau meets Jacob's ladder. I'm talking about these movies that have all of these elements in them. But there's so much more, uh, Terry, that we're not going to get to today. So I want to ask you, I want to put you on the spot right now. I would like to make this a two part interview because we are running out of time. I want to ask a couple more questions sort of in the same area that we've been focusing on. And then I'm going to ask you if you would come back for our very next show and pick up from there where we can get into some of your childhood memories. And uh, I want to talk about what happened in 2012. I don't think, I really don't think we could do it justice, certainly not in the time that we have left, but I think I want the audience to really focus on what you've been saying here and then uh, come back and talk about these other elements and see if we can bridge these two uh, very um, curious, but seemingly, well, I, I think they're very much connected. What I'm talking about your childhood experiences that we haven't gotten into and how it connects to what's happening, what happened in 77. Alexis, thank you so much. There's so much that I, that, that I, that I just didn't have a chance to touch it, especially childhood memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I would be absolutely thrilled and very grateful. Um, and, and very appreciative of an opportunity to to do this again okay. uh, on a timely basis. On a timely and, basis. Uh, I'd like to have you for the next very next show. Juniors, what do you think? I, I think I can tell you, I, obviously, I've spent some time with Terry at this point, and we've talked offline about some, some other elements to this that are equally fascinating, equally curious, equally perplexing. You know, this this forgive the cliche again, rabbit hole goes infinitely deep, and the story is not finished. Uh, there's some recent experiences that you've been having that you've shared with me that I, as much as you feel comfortable, I would love to have our audience uh, get a bit of a, a, um, a download from you on that. So I want to have you back uh, next week, we'll, we'll we can organize uh, time and, and time and place, <laughs> time and space, or date and time, I should say, when we when we uh, get off the air. But before we end this conversation for today, I want to come back to Toby. Something's telling me bring this back to Toby. I asked you a question offline, and I'm going to ask you now uh, if you feel comfortable in talking about it. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned on the air that Toby did ultimately pass away. Uh, when did he pass away? Do, do you... September 7, 2007. September 7, 2007. So it's been about. 12. I didn't tell that story. You didn't tell I, that story. You- I asked. I, I was working on a case of a very ugly child pornography case uh, in uh, September of 2007. And I asked the um, uh, one of the guys I kind of got close with. I said, hey, man, my uh, my buddy I was in the Air Force with. I can't uh, I can't find him. Think you could help me find him? And he kind of arrogantly said, "Oh yeah, I can find anybody." Hmm. So I said, "Yeah, I really want to. I really want to speak to him." So two weeks later, he calls me up and he says, "Terry, I'm sorry, but your friend has passed away." And I said, "He what?" And he says, "Yeah, he said he passed away in an automobile accident mm-hmm. uh, near Flint, Michigan." Uh, there, there was alcohol involved, and um, 
And uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we all know that things happen, and uh, and that's the truth. So I mourned, and I, but you know what? It didn't feel right. It, I swear to God, it didn't feel right. The story that he told you didn't feel yes, accurate it did to you? Not, it did not feel right. I, I, I had uh, nightmares uh, of Toby. And um, I thought, you know, for my book, I'm going to find his obit. And I'm going to blot out the name out of deference to his family. And... Uh, I'm going to uh, put it in the book. Well, I found him all right. Took me all of about 10 minutes. He died September 7th, 2007. That agent lied to me in sometime in 2000, what would have been, would have been summer of, uh, 2000 and pardon me it would have been in summer of 1984 okay i think okay i think you initially said 2007 that so you're saying that what didn't feel right was when the agent told you he had passed in the mid 80s that you didn't get into right right i mean right right yeah the guy told me the the guy told me told told passed in mid 80s and I was shocked, you know, but, you know, I mean, you, you in the car accident in, from the in car a, in a car accident. Yeah. And that was okay. all fabrication. That was a lie. He lied to me. And and Toby was alive all these years. I mean, he was alive in 2007 when I was aching to write this book and talk to him. And uh, we were never able to make connections. Did you learn from the obituary how he actually passed in 2007? He, if you go to the, uh, well, I'd rather not give the name of the funeral home, but. No, that's okay. There there were uh, maybe four people who signed the book, and two of them were, were um, uh, mortuary um employees mm-hmm. so so that saddened me that saddened me worse worse than worse than the news of him passing away that saddened me that no one was there that no one was there and i was alive and i could have been there for him i know and that hurt i can tell it still does I asked you offline, we're going to close here. (laughs) I I have a feeling there's going to be a a lot to this, but let's see if you can condense it. uh, If you can, I asked you offline, have you gotten any messages from Toby since his passing? Yes, there is. There is a history professor, um, a Fulbright scholar, uh, who taught for a year in Denmark. He is um, from, from a Norwegian family, and uh, he is incredibly psychic. And he has kept that to himself. 
and his mother um, all of his adult life. Well, mom is dead now, and he is within eight months, seven months now of retiring. And he wrote a paper for publication saying, um, you know, growing up psychic in the, in the academic world. And all of his, all of his uh, uh, friends read it and thought, my God, uh, Bruce has lost his mind. I'll, I'll use his name because I'm sure he he's no, no uh, has no fear of it. Um, he wrote a book called Timeless Esoterica. It's on uh, um, Amazon. And uh, I'll tell you how psychic the guy is. He told me that uh, I lost my wallet. And uh, I told him, I said, it's been gone for two days now. I'm going to have to order my, my, uh, my uh, reorder everything. You know the drill. Mm -hmm. And he says, give me a minute. He comes back and he says, look at the northeast corner under your bed. And that's where it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a thin wallet, just barely able to slide under there. And that's where it was. Now, <laughs> the um, the other things he did was I asked him, I said, can you tell me, is Toby happy? And he says, yes, Toby's very happy. And he says, he wants me to give you two messages so that you know who I am. And he says, sends his love. Was his nickname that he hated. Mm -hmm. And I, I called him it all the time. Um, and the other, the other gift that he gave me uh, was a was a very very sharp very nice knife. We we'd worked a plane crash, uh, and I was having difficulty extracting the um, the pilot from the seat uh, because my, my blade was dull and my my knife was cheap. Uh, I don't think it would have made a bit of difference. I'm sure it wouldn't have. Uh, he passed away, but. But we got I got him out of the out of the uh, out of the airplane and uh, two days later me a gift and he and it you was mean Toby. Brand, to you mean to to Toby. Toby, thank you. Oh god, thank you. Toby brought me this the gift. Uh, and he brought me uh, this really fairly expensive knife. Uh, that you know was part of our gear that we had to wear, and uh, I was very touched by that. And um, uh, nobody, nobody in the world would have known that I called him. Uh, nobody in the world would have known that that uh, that secret. Um, and uh, there was one more. Kind of embarrassing thing. I'd rather not go into. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, but, but let me put it this way: I was certain, I was certain that this man had spoke with my friend, who died on September seventh, two thousand seven. No doubt in my mind.
I wouldn't be surprised if you heard from him again and maybe with more specifics. I hope. Let's let's hope. Oh boy, Terry Lovelace, um, I want to thank you so, so much for having the courage, for maintaining that courage. You've talked on other shows about why uh, you've come out of your inhibition on this because there was for quite some time. We haven't had a chance to get into it, but the fact that you've arrived here now to tell this story uninhibited with so many others that we well know some of my audience are experiencers of all different kinds. We need to start talking. I know this is a bit of a risk for you given the, the circumstances, but um, keep talking. And I know you will. You just came back from the UFO Congress, and I, I know that you were well-received there. We met at Contact in the Desert. So so Terry's doing the rounds here. Keep doing it. And we are going to have you back. I'm going to have you back in quick succession next week. We're going to talk about uh, some of your childhood experiences. Uh, I'd love to maybe know a little bit more about Toby's, if you're, if you're aware of those. We're going to sure. talk about some other... Mm, presences, let's just say, presences, if that's a word, individual intelligences that made their way into your life at, at very interesting times. We're going to talk about uh, what happened to you in 2012 that may have been the impetus for your wanting to come out now. So we're going to cover all that. I think it warrants its own show. So let's do that. I'm going to thank you again so, so I'm much. Gonna, I'm going to thank you so much. It was a it was a wonderful opportunity to revisit everything and to and to tell the world. And I want the world to know. I, I, I want to, you know, I wish I could just tell the whole world, hey, look, guys, we're, we're not the only inhabitants of this universe. This is a big universe. And, and we're not alone. And we're not the top dog. You know, hmm. we we need to be honest and we need to be accepting of the fact that uh, other beings and entities exist. You know, they well, may want to eat, eat us for lunch. They may want to sit down and have dinner with us. Hmm. I don't know what I don't know which it is. Both, probably both. Both. Yeah, it's yes. a spectrum. Well, you're doing your part more than uh, your part, really. And, and helping us uh, get acclimated to uh, perhaps what will be a new reality that is ubiquitous amongst us homo sapiens sapien worldwide. So again, thank you, Terry. We're going to see you next week. I appreciate you. And as always, I appreciate you, Journeyers, for, for hanging out with us and listening to this incredible story. Make sure you join us next week for part two of my interview with Terry Lovelace. Take care.